0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America, NA, member FDSE. I'm like really mad at myself. Why? Because I did not ask our guest on this episode, might be like a really important question. Oh, gosh. I feel like there's so many we didn't ask her that I wanted to. So I'm
1: curious. What what is the most important that we didn't get to?
0: I want to know how she styles her hair every day. (sighs) Okay. Her hair is
1: amazing. A hundred percent.
0: It's iconic. That is the Dr. Gladys McGarry updo. And it is so
1: precious. I need it. It's a
0: braided crown. Oh, I saw. Y'all. I know
1: it is. A braided crown. That's exactly, that's
0: exactly what but it is. But it's yeah. like a, but it's a bun. It's like a braided crown around a bun. And it is just, it is just that. She is the queen mother of holistic medicine and has completely just blown Jack and I away. I don't know that there's anything else that we can say. We just need y'all to get into this episode with Dr. Gladys McGeary. She's
1: 102, by the way. I know. I was just going to say, you guys, this episode just has so much wisdom, so much love, so much perspective. Be sure to listen all the way through. And at the end, we talk all about her book recently just released. It's actually available for you right now. It's called The Well-Lived Life, 102-Year-Old Doctor's Six Secrets to Health and Happiness at Every Age. Be sure you go check that out right now, right after you get through this episode. We're so happy you're here. Happy Friday. We'll catch you on the other side.
0: Dr. McGarry, please, we are so excited to welcome you to the WOMED.
2: I'm so happy to be here.
0: For those of you who aren't aware... Dr. Gladys McGarry is the mother of holistic medicine. She is also still practicing at 102 years old.
2: Well, I don't have a license. I can consult, so I'm a consultant.
0: (laughs) But that's still amazing. The amount of things that you have seen and like witnessed change in medicine throughout all these years of practice, I, I mean, Jack and I are just thrilled, A, but we have so many questions for you. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you're still a consulting doctor, but one of the things I found so fascinating was that you went to medical school during World War II. Yeah. You have seen the world change so much. And I'm just curious what was it like being a woman in medicine at that time and pursuing a medical degree? Well,
2: I went to Women's Medical College in Philadelphia. So we were all women, but we uh, the instruction was that you have to be tougher than the guys. So they really made it tough for us. We started with 20, with fifty students and ended up with twenty five. They just really pushed it to it. And um, during that process, I went, <laughs> I was sent to the psychiatrist twice. Because uh, I kept saying, well, there's more to it than fighting and killing. And there's other, you know, and I kept asking questions like that and making comments. And they didn't think it was, you know, it, it was woo.
0: You mean bringing in more concepts of holistic medicine into med school at that time?
2: Yeah. Well, you know. You know, I was born and raised in India, and my parents were medical missionaries and they were both osteopaths. My mother was a real pioneer. Uh she graduated, A.T. Still was their professor. She graduated in 1913 from Kirksville. Wow. <laughs> so it's a long history.
0: <laughs> you have had so much exposure to all different fields in medicine. I mean, from such a young age, seeing more concepts of Western medicine, like yoga, acupuncture, and different ways of treating the body as a whole. I mean, of course, you're in med school, you're pushing boundaries, and they think you're crazy for it. Oh, yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Of course, (laughs) we're crazy, because we have better ideas. And Female practitioners always worked harder because, like you said, you have to be, we have to be tougher than the men in this field.
1: And you're actually the co-founder of the American Holistic Medicine Association. So it sounds like your passion for holistic medicine started at a very young age, being exposed with your parents. How did that all come together then? When did you feel like you finally were able to have a voice in that sort of realm?
2: It's really interesting. I didn't really claim my voice until I was ninety-three. Th- that's that's a fact. Because when I uh, when I grew up in India and and we my parents took their medical work out into the jungles of North India, the villages, and I thought life was supposed to be that way, you know. And then I started school, and everything turned upside down because I was severely dyslexic and I couldn't figure out I knew the alphabet and I knew the numbers, but they didn't stay still and so I had to repeat first grade twice because I was a class dummy. I mean it was really uh, the teacher thought so and the other kids thought so though so I fought myself around. <laughs> to say no, well, you know maybe I am, but that scarring was something that was so deep that uh, I didn't really claim my voice until I was 93. I knew that I had to say something. I knew I had to do something. I knew what it was, but I always deferred to somebody, something else. I would either say, well, Bill, who was my husband, he's a physician, he did it, he said it, or, or somebody else, said, you know, it was constantly saying, well, thank you very much if somebody complimented me. But then I'd say, yeah, but you want to know how I found out my voice?
1: Yeah, yes, absolutely. Please tell us. <laughs> tell us. I'm on yes. the edge of my seat. <laughs>
2: well, I pay attention to dreams. I have all the time I'm with my patients and with my kids and myself. And so this one Sunday morning, I woke up and I was singing and hymns and laughing, but I was in that in-between phase of when you're not quite awake, but not, you know, you're still dreaming. And I saw myself as nine-year-old Gladys. Now, I'm looking at this. Nine-year-old Gladys in the jungles of North India, checking out, the, uh, opening up the flap of the, our tent and checking out to make sure that my younger brother is in Iran because he's going to tattle on me because I was going to do something we weren't allowed to do which was sing anything I wanted to sing on a Sunday morning. And we were only to sing hymns or bhajans on Sunday morning. So I thought that was a stupid rule. And so I he wasn't there. So I ran as fast as I could, and I climbed the tree, mango tree right up to the top. And I'm sitting up there, and I'm singing. I mean, I'm singing a caterpillar song. I'm singing anything I wanted to sing. And every so often, I look over my shoulder on the right, and Jesus is up in the tree with me. And I say to him, oh, Jesus loves the little children, right? And he's, he's really laughing. And he says, yes, yes. So then I go back to my singing, but then I begin to think, well, I'm not sure about this. So I look back and I say, I'm still a little children, right? And he says, right. And that's when I woke up. And at that point, I realized that what I had been doing all these years was, in essence, denying what it was that I was saying. I mean, I would say these things, and I really believed them, and I was teaching them and, and working with patients. You know, it was the essence of what I felt I was. But I that big scar was still hanging there but jesus kind of helped that <laughs> you know so after that i i would someone would say something about it, compliment me i would say well, thank you instead of just you know tossing it off. that's
0: uh, that's a really special really special thing and i think something a theme that healthcare workers can relate to especially women in medicine is that we you know, we're still kind of taught to hide that voice and hide that essence and not speak up as loud, you know, because we have to keep room for all this other stuff and not really honoring our knowledge, our life skills, and essence that that we are. Right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's such an important, important lesson. You know, so it takes a long time sometimes to understand it but you know it's there
0: at what point did like the concept of holistic care come into play for you in your practice
2: well, all during my training i was kind of pushing against that because after all, I had grown up in India and I watched my parents work with people in ways that were, uh, you know, they had no tools. If they're taking their things back into the jungle, they had a few things, but they didn't have a, the, a pharmacopoeia that they could go to or anything like that. Mm. So they had to use you know, what they were working with was love and healing. <laughs> I mean, it's as simple as that. And when a group of us uh, in the late 50s and early 60s began talking to physicians, nurse practitioners, or began talking to each other about something, there's more to it than this, and so on, that's when we decided we need to create the American Holistic Medical Association. We didn't know what to call it and it took us two years to learn how to spell it, but it was. Because we knew that we were taught a lot about our bodies and we were taught something about our minds in the whole field, but there was nothing about the spirit. So obviously, the root word was the one with an H. The root word is healing, health, and holy. So that's when we really became the American Holistic Medical Association and, and began putting things out publishing things and saying things that we were saying and what we were working with. We were calling all kinds of names, <laughs> not complimentary, but we had to do the work.
1: I'm sure. And I'm curious how that work, integrating the mind, body and spirit into medicine, what was that pushback like, especially earlier in your career and then throughout? Um, did you have a lot of other mentors and support Or was there mostly a lot of pushback?
2: Well, our our support came from each other because there were others who were looking at the same thing. But my oldest son is a retired orthopedic surgeon. And when he came through Phoenix, he was going down to Del Rio, Texas to start his practice. And he said, Mom, I don't know if I can handle this. He said, I have all of this training but I'm going to have people's lives in my hands. I I don't know if I can handle that. And I said, well, Carl, if you think you're the one that does the healing, you have a right to be afraid. Mm -hmm. If You can understand that it's your job to do the amazing job of orthopedics, which is so important in the whole field and do, do it to the best of your ability and then support the patient as they do their own healing. Because within that patient, is your colleague, which is the physician within them. Mm. And he took it, and he's retired now, and he's a master gardener and something like that on six acres of land in Washington State.
0: <laughs> I love that your whole family has kind of taken up the physician mantle. That's really special. You've instilled like a great gift in in your children. That's really wonderful.
2: Oh, they, they were my... Foundation. They they focused Mm. me. They helped me Mm. get through things. If you have little people or into teens and so on.
1: I'm curious. Can you walk us through some of those specialties that you worked in, and um, like what your major body of practice was in? Have you worked in like family medicine and primary care? What was your specialty in throughout your career?
2: Primary care, but birthing was my love
1: oh wow
2: (laughs) because we have done such a bad job and when i was in medical school and after we were doing twilight sleep the people Mm -hmm. my oldest two sons i had twilight sleep and that meant that the patient the mother knew nothing i didn't know my son was a boy and for 24 hours, my oldest wow. son. Anyway, that, that was the way it was. But the, And since the, the mother was completely anesthetized, we, who were going now to deliver a baby, which I th- think is a wrong term. We, I'm trying not to not say that because women birth babies. We deliver pizzas and we deliver speeches and stuff. We don't deliver babies. But during that time, we had to because there was no way of getting the baby out. And so we used forceps and I was got I was real good at that. I could even do an coming head and not damage, you know, so you learn what you have to learn, but then you have to teach what you have to teach, which can be quite different. And so when after I graduated from medical school and we went through my Internship and stuff, and, and boy, that was tough because Deaconess Hospital had not never had a woman uh, positioned. Wow. Anyway, there's a, all kinds of stories there, but the p- whole birthing process. Uh, we went to a Bill's, my husband's hometown, which was Wellsville, Ohio, and I began doing home births. And we, some of these births were out in little shacks with in the fields, you know, really, really poor people. And uh, so, at that point, uh, I even carried my forceps along with me in the bag in case I needed them. But I had to depend on the mother to do this birthing process, and it's it shifted. So now my Dream. Here's my dream. I really, really want to create a village for living medicine where people who are in this village understand that life and love and laughter and labor and understanding are the essence. Of, I call them the five L's of this. And the start of it is a loving birth center. Mm-hmm. So that every baby that is comes into this world comes into a, an environment of love and caring, no matter how difficult the uh, delivery, no, not the birthing is. <laughs> that word, it keeps, keeps slipping in, but we mean the birthing.
1: That's so, I love that so much. My identical twin sister is actually a midwife. And delivers, uh, well, yeah, Burst. delivers. And she she <laughs> always reminds me that they always say that they catch babies. They're baby catchers. And they like to catch babies instead of deliver babies. So I love how you pointed that out. Um, and birthing centers, can you elaborate a little bit more for maybe some of our listeners who aren't really familiar with birthing centers? I think they're starting to pop up a lot more throughout the states in certain areas, for sure, more than others. But
0: I love this vision for you. I can like see I yes. can see this. Reducing birth it's, it's trauma. A,
1: it's, yeah. It's
2: allowing the mother to birth the baby any way she wants. If she chooses a bathtub, we can provide that. If she I have a patient this woman was a dancer. She danced that baby out. I mean really <laughs> literally danced. I had to kind of move along with her. It was pretty interesting and uh it's it's that idea that what we really want to do is have the mother and the baby understand that this is their job together mm. and that the baby's involved in this too mm. <laughs> i learned that personally when uh with my last child bob bradley had just written the book husband coach child birth and uh Bill and I were in the audience, and I was within a week for his, for David, my youngest birth. And I was planning on doing it at home, and which I I ended up doing. But in the middle of the lecture, all of a sudden, this kid in my belly (laughs) moves from being a, a head down proper to a transverse. And I'm, right. sitting
1: this,
2: I'm sitting in this lecture and I'm looking at this process that's going on in here. And I don't hear anything more that Bob Bradley has to say, because now I'm talking, David, to this baby. I didn't know it was a boy or a girl, but I knew this baby was, you know, needed to change positions and he had a part in what was doing. So I'm telling him, uh, now, look, you got your head in the wrong place. We need to get it back down there, and we got to get your butt up here. And I'll help you, but you got to help me. And so I didn't hear anything else Bob said because I'm working with David, and so <laughs> we work along, work along. All of a sudden, he pops his head down where it belonged, and I could settle. And then a week later, we did it, you know, the way it needed to be done. But you really, really, I had the personal experience. Of really communicating with that little guy while he was doing the process that we needed to do together. That's and really special. It's, it's beginning to you know when when you really get it and you begin to understand that this birthing process is a teamwork thing. It's glorious. Is what it is.
0: It's really special. My primary background was neonatal intensive care. And so I would be charged and like our NICUs and I would go to the high risk deliveries and um, obviously cared for like the sickest of sick populations um, as, as neonates. But it's it's such a special process and something that's just really near and dear to my heart, how resilient these babies are, how resilient the moms are and what a special thing that is. You mentioned your foundational five L's. And I'm just wondering if you can kind of break those down a little bit and how Thank um, you. those come into play. Yeah, how those come into play with your uh, new book. When
2: we did the American Holistic Medical Association, we did a lot of talking and working with things and so on. Gradually, this concept from emerged for me, for my own. Uh, understanding of what life and the whole process was that we were working with. And I realized that uh, these five L's, they made some kind of sense to me so that I could begin to uh, think about things in different categories. And the first one was the whole business of life. Because life... Is the essence of what we're all about. You know, we're here, we're alive, and that's it. But uh, life is like a seed. It can be in the pyramid for five thousand years and nothing's going on. In in fact, the whole energy of the universe is within that seed, but nothing's happening until it's activated with somebody paying attention and putting water on it and loving it when love enters in it cracks the shell and the two of them love and life become one it's like a an and a sperm you know one is not much use without the other if you're going to have some life here so the life is essence to this whole process of us being on this planet and then laughter Laughter without love is cruel. It's cold. It's mean. But laughter with love is joy and happiness. That's it beautiful. Just, it's a completely different aspect of our being. Labor without love is I got to go to work. There are too many diapers, you know, just drag yourself to work. But labor with love is bliss. It's why you do what you're doing. It's why it, it's why singers sing. It's why painters paint. It it's the essence of our b- true humanity that we're reaching for, and it's bliss. It just is. And then the fifth one is understanding. Understanding without love is just like a clanging gong. It's empty sound. Uh, I, you've As nurse practitioners know and physicians know that there are a lot of physicians who really don't listen to their patients. And patients will come back and tell you and me and others that uh, they looked at their computer or they looked at this or that or the other thing, but never listened to what they were saying. But listening with love is understanding. And with understanding, you can begin to really work with a person who is struggling with whatever it is that they're struggling with.
0: How lucky we are just to have you on the pod speaking to us right now. Oh, thank
2: you. (laughs) But, you know, all that I've done wouldn't amount to a hill of beans if you didn't pick it up. So take your credit in this, too.
0: So you also have a new book coming out, The Life Well-Lived, 102-Year-Old Doctor's Six Secrets to Health and Happiness at Any Age. What prompted you to write this book? Like you, you've done so much, like just adding on like another thing to your resume or did you feel like really called to write it?
2: Uh, it was a call because the other books that I've written are about the medical field. Like the first one is was about born to live, and then another one was, well, the world needs old ladies, and you know that kind of thing. But it was all about the med- how we all fit into this world of medicine. So that that was my reason for doing this, because I understood that I had a message that was the essence of what it was that i wanted to say i mean the medicine was there and all of that and we had done that and there was great night but the real uh true humanity that we're all reaching for like et you know you had you had to go to, <laughs> go home well if we have to go home we're cr- calling our true humanity and and that's what I, I think we're, we really are working towards. So that's uh, that's what my book's about.
1: That's
0: so special.
1: In the book, you have a few different things that you talk about besides what we've kind of already covered. But um, a few points are, you know, everything is your teacher, spend your energy wisely or wildly. wildly. Can you tell us about that? Because at first I saw that and I was like, usually the it's spend your energy wisely. Yes. But you say spend your energy wildly. Can you explain where that comes from and what that means?
2: Very, mu- very yeah, thank you. Because um, when we say to a patient, they're ill and you need to go home and rest or something like that, If the patient says, well, I need to go home and rest, and that's doing nothing, and then they slump into a sort of a space where they can't do anything or they won't do anything, they're not interested in doing anything, in other words, they're stuck, then then they're stuck and, and life needs to move. You have to be able to move from one step to the next. Or you die. It's just it's that simple, and so the whole concept of spending your um, energy wildly is what What is it that makes you actually sing? What is it that you really want to do, and and then do it, no matter who says what and when? It's something. If your soul is calling you to do this, and you say yes yes and respond to it it can be wild let me tell you the world may not be ready for it and 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 that's okay because you you can't save energy and when you tell a patient to go and rest that's doing something it's actively going and resting but then when the rest is over you get up but if you think going and resting means you go and you just give up then you're not doing it you're not doing anything yeah so yes you're Uh, not resting
0: in the healing
2: yeah it's 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 essential to well you know you watch a plant grow a, a rose trellis if you cut if the if it's interrupted part way up it dies. I mean that part will can cannot grow any farther. And if and in order to grow any farther, you have to do the steps of go and go and go and go. Wow.
1: You offer so much wisdom and I cannot wait for our listeners to dive in more to your book. But while we have you here, I just have a few more questions just about how you have seen the Face of medicine change over the last few decades. You've seen, you know, from the rise of the AIDS crisis to us finding um, pretty much not a cure, but something that has drastically changed what that looks like. And then two years, three years ago, you saw a global pandemic. When you saw the pandemic come, the COVID 19 pandemic, um, what did that feel like compared to some of the other things you have seen and witnessed in your career? Was it as scary for you as it was maybe for the rest of us or because you've already seen so much, you kind of internally knew that this would pass?
2: Well, uh sort of a sideline here but it's not a sideline. When I when we had to wear masks, mm-hmm. it just took me back to my childhood. Muhammad mm-hmm. Women have wearing masks for eons. They've lived in burkas, and men didn't want to see anything but their eyes, and that's been going on for eons. So for me, it was well like here we go again. (laughs) You know, we we but the guys had to mask up too. You know, so it wasn't just us. It was different. That was a different. However. The the beauty of life itself is that each one of these uh, epics in time are that you you don't just get over something you live through it and if you live through it you have experienced what's there and and you've moved to the next level you know I had the opportunity of going to Afghanistan when I was eighty six and it was amazing because my Older brother, who was the head of the Future Generations, and they had worked around the with UNICEF and so on around the world, found out that in the Afghani women, the birth, the death rate from women was higher than any place else in the world, mm-hmm. and they couldn't find out why. They couldn't get any answers for it, and well, partly because they couldn't talk to the women but then they're, they're just why is this so i was just ready to retire from my practice and my brother said well why don't you come to afghanistan and see what we can do there and see if you can because they may they'll talk to a woman but they won't mm-hmm. talk to the rest of us so uh dr shukriya hassan was a, a, a afghani amazing afghani woman physician whose family had kicked her out because she was called a bad woman because she went to medical school and she talked to men and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, she was amazing. And she and I had the opportunity to work with, uh, we invited 30 women to come to a big house that we rented. And uh, it would. we did a different time, but this one, we rented this big house. And when we got there, we had invited two women from every village, uh, 10 different villages. When we got there, there were 50 women there. And we had to send 20 of them away because we didn't have space enough. Because when we had first thought about this, we had to first ask the men to to let us do this. And they said, no, you can't have our wives. And Shukriya says to them, we're looking for your mother's-in-law. Well, they were, were <laughs> that was okay. Well, the, what, the nice thing was that the mothers-in-law were still having babies. So, you know, it was, we had little people, and but we ha- had opportunity to really, for a week, live with them and, and have them tell their own stories. And these women had never told stories even to each other much. You know, it was just that this is what they did, and they got through it, and or they didn't died, and whatever. But it was it was uh, something that they really, you know, they were not stupid women. They were ignorant. They had not been taught anything. And what we found out, because we made a matrix and we followed each one of their pregnancies, and uh, you know, mapped this all out. We found out that when they got pregnant, they weren't allowed to eat it uh, to eat anything that contained calcium. They didn't know what it was, but um, the eggs and uh, yogurt and carrots and so on. So that by the time they were in labor, practically all of them talked about being in labor like this, which is tetany, hypocalcemic tetany, and and when they went into labor. They were not allowed to have anything to eat or drink. So you have a starved woman doing the greatest work in the world and they were given nothing. I I said to them, you know, you're doing the hardest work in the whole world. There's no work any harder than this. How, how did this happen? And a couple of them said, must've been men did this because, you know, but they were totally caught up with that. I had a, Little piece of blackboard and chalk, and I told them what their process was because they were. It was like, you know, when you're digesting your food, you don't know what what's going on in there. Well, this was for them like that. They they knew how they got pregnant, and then they didn't know what happened. And so, when they were in this condition where they could not push that baby out, someone from the outside had to push. So you have ruptured uteruses, you have prolapsed bladders, you have fistula, you have dead babies, and you have dead mamas. And it was so obvious when, when when they began to understand that the cervix has to open up so that the baby can come through. They, they were in awe. And uh, so I told them about the sperm and the ovum. And one woman said, well, how many sperm? And I said, millions. And they said, how many eggs? And I said, one. And she gets to choose which sperm she wants. They all put their shoulders up and sat back and said, whoa. <laughs> so, but it was, it was a wonderful time. But the sort of a spin-off from that. When I came back to the states, I was talking at one of the pre and perinatal uh, conferences and found out that our C-section rate was so high here. it was in Arizona it was about uh, 35, 40 percent. but in and there was a woman in, from Russia and she said in Russia, The hospital C section rate is 100%. And in Brazil, there was a woman there from Brazil. She said it was 87% in the hospital. Well, you see, they were, we now, because we think we know so much, we're doing what the Afghani women did, you know, having someone else take over and do the whole process. So, anyway. Uh, I kind of got off track, but
1: no, we loved every second of it.
2: Oh, I meant to mention that within a year, the birth rate, the death rate had significantly changed because you know, women when they learn something, they teach. They can't help it, and so they went home. These thirty-five women went home and they taught in their villages, and and it changed. So when 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 you t- ask me about all the things that have happened and the things that I've lived through, the exciting the exciting part for me has been how there are ways of getting not through it but living through it, and 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 learning the lessons that we need to learn. I was walking down the hall in one of our beautiful hospitals here in Phoenix one day years ago. And I looked, I said, you know, this is just really beautiful, but what is it? And I realized it was a temple to the goddess disease, which is not a bad thing. But, you know, if that's, if all we treat there is disease and pain, uh, then there's something else to be looked at.
1: Mm. Right. Like what kind of healing is actually happening in a place where everyone is just sick with disease and you're just trying to figure out how to cure the illness and fix the disease and not look at everything else in the picture. Right. right.
2: It's a, it's a war on disease. Wow. And pain. And so we're still continuing World War II as far as I'm concerned.
1: Mm. Wow it's interesting though even you know that you've been interweaving these aspects into your career since you were e- even young your parents were were doing this kind of work and here we are in 2023 and it's still somewhat pushed back uh integrating somewhat eastern practices with western medicine and people turning an eyebrow up to that or looking past that do you th- Do you see it changing, uh, that it has changed in a positive way? And do you see it changing further in the future?
2: Uh, uh, Yes and no. It depends on where we choose. Mm. Because we can go forward and realize that the pharmaceuticals, there's nothing wrong with pharmaceuticals if they're used for the benefit of the patient in a way that does not take away, or is just well. The problem is we don't know what we're doing. If we can understand that our that we're fighting against disease and pain, and um, and what I'm saying is you don't need to fight against them. You need to learn from them. I I love working with chronically ill patients. A lot of my colleagues don't. But then they want to get results. Well, these chronically ill patients are patients who are learning how to deal with the illness that's there to teach them something. And some of the most amazing people I know, well, take Franklin Roosevelt for Trinata. He had post-polio syndrome. He dealt with it all the time. I have a patient who just died about three weeks ago at the age of uh 78 and she has lived since she was 18 months old with one quarter of one kidney
1: now, wow wow i had no idea
2: you could even do that no <laughs> i don't know, none of us know how she did it you know the those of us who were caring for her and, and and she and she birthed one baby and uh lived a Full life, just an amazing life. But she always understood what it was that she was putting into her body. She checked with herself before she did it, and if she got a uh uh-uh, she would tell uh, anybody. She didn't care who who the physician was, but that she wasn't taking that. So it's it was, she actually knew about living medicine from the what had happened to her. She was an 18-month-old uh, little girl here in Arizona, and they were putting a new roof on the house, and they had a ladder up against the house. So she was climbing up the ladder, and she got to the second story, and she looks in, and she sees the, her mother. and scared her so bad she let go of the ladder, and fell into the tar bucket. So she injured her, her she, fortunately her head didn't go in her arm, but she injured her kidney.
1: Oh my gosh. So
2: badly they had to remove that kidney. And then it uh, had problems. And uh, you know, I mean, and she, so her first 11 years of her life were spent on di- in dialysis. But then she got out of that, and she was a cheerleader in the in the high school and all of that. It, it it just her need to live life the way she needed to live it was so important that she just kept on, and and uh, those of us who were working with her were in constant awe. And I have other patients like that, you know, that have done these amazing things because they've taken the responsibility and worked with them.
0: Gladys, we have appreciated speaking with you so much on the WOMED. We will link your book uh, to our listeners and we'll have all that in the show notes for for our, our team. I just have to say like one last, well, two last things. One, I don't know if you've seen it, you've seen the show, but while I was researching your career, I was like, Gladys reminds me of Claire Fraser from Outlander.
1: Yeah, from the show. Yeah. yeah I
0: love that show. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know if you've wow. seen Outlander, but you really remind me of the the lead um, actress in that. Oh, the,
1: thank you. <laughs> the heroine oh,
0: of the show. Well, so,
2: so honored.
0: Yeah. You can...
2: Get in touch with com. Yes. Perfect.
0: Perfect. Perfect. We'll yeah. have that in the show notes too.
2: I feel very privileged in being able to do this kind of thing because I think the world really does is so scared and uh, needs hope.
1: We're honored to have you. Thank so you. thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you for everything that you've done throughout your <laughs>
0: incredibly
1: accomplished career. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
0: I feel warm and renewed. And also like, I want to, I want to listen to all of her stories. Like she, I, I need more stories from Gladys. Gladys is our new
1: resident grandma and just total
0: fairy godmother
1: fairy godmother yeah
0: we are so so grateful to dr mcgarry for joining us on the podcast today um we will have a link to her book where you can purchase that because we want our fairy godmother to have a New York Times bestseller. Again, the book she just wrote is called The Life Well-Lived, 102-Year-Old Doctor's Six Secrets to Health and Happiness at Every Age. That book will launch on May 2nd, so it will already be available to you by the time this episode comes out, but I think it'll be a welcome addition to every bookshelf.
1: Absolutely, Danielle. I hope that everyone goes out and buys this book because we have made a personal promise to Gladys that we are going to do everything in our human power to help her get on the New York Times bestseller list. But more importantly, the title of the book, I think you guys will see in the episode, just absolutely rings true, not just to how Dr. McGrary has practiced seeing patients, but also how she lives her own life. You can just see that she is absolutely just glowing she is happy she's fulfilled she is surrounded by love and it's just so inspirational
0: so if this episode resonated with you or you know someone looking into the holistic medicine route please share this episode every share and review um, and download really helps our podcast out so on that last note jack and i love you guys so much And we're just going to hashtag live life like Gladys. So (laughs) we'll see y'all next week. Woman out.